I see that it's really that, that fact-based honesty, which is what medicine and science is based on, is really coming under some kind of attack. You know, it's it's become almost politically incorrect to question any of the any of the authorities. You know, there's a reason that the First Amendment is the First Amendment. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. Today we have a, yet another episode in our coronavirus series, and I'm delighted to be uh, welcoming Dr. Daniel Barrow to this podcast. Dan Barrow, I think everybody already knows who he is. He is the uh, chair of neurosurgery at Emory University in Atlanta. He's been the president of so many societies, including the Congress of Neurosurgeons. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Now, Dan, I, we could talk about just about anything with you. We could talk about whiskey, we could talk about cars, we could talk about guns. But I, I wanted to focus today on this, this very important issue, which is it's looking like there's going to be a new normal in the world. And certainly in Miami, we have already made adjustments to maybe things are never going to be the same for us as neurosurgeons. And of course, you know, Georgia is in the news daily now because of all the things happening there. So we wanted to get your insights on what's happening in Atlanta, in Georgia, and what you think is going to happen in the future. Yeah, well, that's, um, you know, I, I'm, this is a perfect topic for me because, um, you know, virtually every expert in this area has been wrong. And uh, I'm not an expert in the area, so I couldn't do any worse than, uh, than all of our experts have done. Um, and, you know, I don't say that in a critical way. Um, it's just that this is a new virus, and I think um, uh, everyone, politicians, epidemiologists, my dear friends at the CDC, which are you know right here on our campus, uh, have done their very best, but uh, they've all been wrong, um, and so I, I guess I couldn't do any worse. Um, I, I'm reminded of a quote from uh, Niels Bohr, the, the great quantum theorist who won the Nobel Prize in physics, said that an expert is a man who has made all the mistakes which can be made in a narrow field. So um, I guess uh, I guess I'll be an expert in this. So before we start looking forward, Dr. Barrow, why don't you give us and our listeners a sense of what things are like on the ground now in Atlanta? Yeah, you know, things are easing up uh, in terms of the number of patients that we're uh, admitting to our hospitals uh, we are, you know, the, the curve uh, got flattened, as they say, uh, actually a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and um, going back to what I said about the experts all making their mistakes, our governor, Brian Kemp, um, you know, has been essentially tortured by the press for opening our economy. Um, his family has been receiving death threats. Um, and who knows whether what he's doing is, is right or not. But at, at some point, uh, we have to make those steps to reopen our economy. Uh, I, I think um, it, it's, it's, it's important to, 
to keep in mind that uh, we've, you know, we've kind of created this dichotomy. Uh, we either uh, care about people's lives or we are a bunch of capitalist pigs uh, who really only care about economics. And that dichotomy doesn't exist. There needs to be a way to, uh, to care about lives and protect the most vulnerable, but recognize that young, healthy people have an extraordinarily low risk and try to get them back uh, into the workforce. And I think that's what our state and, uh, and many others are doing is to try to walk that balance. Yeah, I love that you bring up about the dichotomy because it really does seem so polarizing. And and I'm sure we all know people who are on both extremes of this uh, of this polarity, if you will. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the our hospital system is losing $2 million a day. And that's not the only thing that matters, of course. And of course, every life that's lost is tragic. Uh, we as doctors are, are intimately familiar with that. And we had uh, Mo Biden on uh, last week talking about the economic impact at Mayo Clinic, right? And so just as a disclaimer, I'll give the same one I gave for him, which is just because we're talking about the future does not mean that we do not remember uh, the past. We are all very sensitive to the, the lost lives. So Dr. Barrow, give us a little insight on what is happening at Emory, because you're leading that ship there in terms of preparations for maybe what a new normal might be and what that new normal might look like. Yeah, well, I uh, I think that that's one of the things that won't change with COVID um, is that as neurosurgeons, our surgery remains essential. Uh, we do very little that would fall into the category of truly elective surgery, at least the way we've defined it. You know, um, the way that we have defined essential surgery are procedures that are critical for, you know, very specific conditions uh, in preventing death, uh, progression of disease, and long-term disability, and that if completed, uh, they will lead to significant improvement in the quality of life, the activities of daily living, or the ability to return to work. And, and uh, that's unlike other surgical specialties where there are truly elective cases. Now, you know, maybe if I'm doing a cranioplasty for somebody who's got some temporal wasting, that would be an elective procedure that may not need to be done. Um, but uh, one of the things that won't change is that we, we will continue to need to do our cases. So we have moved from doing only urgent and emergency cases a few weeks ago to doing more uh, time-sensitive cases that had an impact on patients' lives in the next uh, week or two. And coming next week, we will be expanding our essential surgery uh, further to reach about 50% of our, our normal capacity. You know, as this um, rollout per se continues and, and you continue to expand the volume and type of cases that you're performing there in Atlanta, um, what's your sense of the patient side of things as, as you begin to get into closer and closer to elective waters in, in terms of the surgeries being performed? Um, is there any concern that patients might be apprehensive about returning to the hospital for something they feel could wait a little longer? And I'm sure there's still restrictions on family visiting patients in the hospital, which, of course, would weigh on anyone's decision to go in for a procedure. Um, have, have you or your colleagues got any sense of where the patient's heads are? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, uh, there, Both of those are, are issues. Um, we have patients that are uh, hesitant to come into the hospital, even with 
uh, essential needs and time-sensitive needs. And, and the other issue you brought up, uh, we have patients that um, are uh, hesitant to come uh, if they're not able to bring a family member. So Emory uh, has been um, uh, very careful about the number of, of people that come through our hospital, but we have made exceptions for uh, certain uh, surgical conditions, certain types of chemotherapy, uh, certain types of, of complex procedures where we think it's important that a family member be there. I, I just this past week operated on a young girl from out of state with a brainstem cavernous malformation. And um, she, her, her mother very much felt that it was important for her to be with her and we did as well. And so we made an exception for that, obviously after talking with the ICU and the nurses and making sure that we could accommodate them without putting any of our patients or staff at risk. Um, so uh, those are issues. And, you know, as I thought about the, the topic of what is life and what's neurosurgery going to be like after COVID-19, I kind of, you know, thought about the things that won't change. Some things are going to be exactly the same. Um, the things that will change and, and then, you know, the unknowns. And um, I think this falls into the category of the things that will change. I think one of the uh, changes that will be more permanent after COVID-19 is that um, not only will patients think twice about coming to uh, crowded areas like hospitals, but I think um, our telemedicine visits are going to uh, remain and expand. Um, I, I've not uh, talked at length with a lot of my colleagues, but Emory was a place where, quite frankly, uh, some of my colleagues and I have been begging for the opportunity to do telemedicine visits and really had not gotten a lot of traction. And sometimes it takes a crisis uh, to get things done that you can't otherwise get done. So Emory's been doing about 3,000 telemedicine uh, visits uh, a day. Wow. Not, obviously not neurosurgery. That's all at the Emory Clinic. And we have done the, a, a large number of them in our department, and uh, we found it to be extremely useful. Many of our patients come from um, Alabama, Mississippi, the Carolinas, Florida, Tennessee, uh, and they would actually rather have a telemedicine visit than um, drive into a, you know, the busy city of Atlanta and, and park and wait in our waiting rooms. So that's one of the the positive changes that I think is going to be permanent after this. Yeah, Dan, I, I, I concur with you 100%. And I think this issue also of, you know, people going through a, a neurosurgical procedure, it's really hard, right? Their families aren't with them at their side. So we've tried to adapt to that here in Miami. And I'm sure JP at Rush has a similar issue. What exactly are you doing in the cases that are not exceptions? What, what do you do to in, increase the engagement with the families? Is, is it communication? Or are you using some some kind of portal? What what do you do to make people feel comfortable coming into surgery alone like this? Yeah, it's all the above. Our telemedicine visits are are conducted using Zoom, so we can we can see the patient. We can do um, uh, somewhat of a neurological examination. It's actually pretty interesting. Uh, being creative, you can do a pretty good neurological examination for most of the things that we do. I think one of the exceptions may be uh, spine surgery. I, I think, you know, to try to determine if somebody, that's not what I do, but in talking to my colleagues that do, I think it's a little difficult to 
uh, detect a subtle myelopathy or really examine a radiculopathy uh, well. I think for uh, Nick Boulis, my partner that does uh, peripheral nerve surgery, a little difficult to do a good peripheral nerve exam. But I think um, for most of what I do, uh, uh, seeing patients with unruptured aneurysms, with AVMs, with vascular malformations, uh, tumors of the skull base, uh, we can evaluate them very well. Oftentimes their families are on the, uh, the telemedicine consult and we allow them to ask questions. Um, and we, we do make exceptions for those patients where we really do believe that uh, having a family member present uh, will expedite their care and, and uh, provide a, a better environment for uh, their recovery. So it's, it's all of those things uh, combined, I think. Dr. Barrow, having touched on the inpatient and outpatient side of these things, let me uh, speak from personal bias and talk to you a bit about training within neurosurgery um, as things start to settle down. Um, obviously, even if you know centers around the country begin resuming elective or semi-elective cases in the next few weeks or the next month, as it may be, um, I think we would all be surprised if you know, all at once overnight, we jumped right back up to the old case volumes that we had a few months ago. Um, has there been any discussion within your department or within the community at large of which you're a leader about how this might impact case volumes for trainees? Uh, yes, it has. Um, uh, and I think there, there are a number of, of potential repercussions of that. Um, you know, just to pick up on one of the things you said, uh, you know, the, the, the changes in the impact is going to vary uh, tremendously across the nation. New York is not, you know, Fargo, North Dakota, and, and, and we're, gonna, we're going to re resume normal at very different paces uh, in different parts of the country. So pr training programs uh, based upon their pre-existing condition uh, and based upon where they are, are going to be affected in a very heterogeneous uh, manner. Uh, but we're all going to be affected. It, you know, it's really not possible to take, um, uh, you know, to destroy six to seven trillion dollars in liquidity of our economy and not have some permanent changes. So the financial impact on academic medical centers is going to have a number of, of repercussions. And, uh, uh, you know, just I think almost all academic medical centers have put somewhat of a freeze on, on discretionary spending, uh, travel uh, to meetings. Uh, already we've canceled the AANS. We've canceled the senior society meeting. We've canceled the academy meeting for next fall. Um, uh, the Georgia Neurosurgical Society was canceled. Uh, these all have an impact on on resident education, uh, and and our residents have have missed a lot of operative experience over the past several weeks. So one of the things we did uh, is evaluated the case logs of all of our residents uh, about a week ago, and we're fortunate that we're the only academic medical center in a city of 6 million people, which is a very unique demographic. Right. And so our residents are, are fine um, in terms of their case logs and you know, our, our graduating residents, for example, who are going to be leaving us, you know, within a, a month or so. We needed to make sure that there weren't uh, 
holes in their experience and, and we're fortunate and, and, and there are not. That may not be the case for smaller programs that have smaller volumes or programs that are in cities where there may be four or five competing academic uh, programs. So I, I think the impact is going to be felt by all, certainly the financial impact will. Um, I think the impact on training is going to vary tremendously across the country and there isn't going to be a one size fits all. We're going to have to figure out at each program uh, how we make up for any lost experience a resident might have had. Now, Dan, tell us about what kind of safety assurances you're doing at Emory as we evolve into this post-COVID world. For example, in Miami, nobody can have a surgery unless they've tested negative. Um, there's a discussion of whether healthcare providers need to prove that they either have antibodies or are negative. What, what do you think is going to happen? This reminds me a lot of the AIDS era. You know, I grew up in that. And actually, I worked at CDC in Atlanta. As you know, I, I grew up in Atlanta. Yeah. And it, it reminds me a lot of what was going on back in the, um, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s. What do you think is going to happen in Emory? What are you doing proactively to make patients feel comfortable to come to your center? Well, um, <laughs> you know, like, like the rest of the country, uh, the rules have changed because uh, going back to what I said in the beginning, the experts uh, have all been wrong. You know, we were told COVID couldn't spread from person to person. We were told uh, face masks don't work until April 3rd when suddenly they did work when the CDC changed its advice. We were told to stay inside our house. Now we're learning that, you know, it's probably better to be out of doors uh, and not inside the house, uh, you know. We've been told we should stay locked down until the virus stops infecting people, and it will only stop infecting people if we get enough of us infected that we build immunity. So, you know, um, our rules have changed as everybody has. Uh, I, I, I think the current issue is testing, and we are doing lots and lots of antibody testing on all of our healthcare workers. Uh, we're doing uh, testing on patients. But we really don't know what those tests mean yet. Um, you know, having antibodies, uh, my brother-in-law, for example, is a cardiac surgeon. He, he had a, uh, an antibody test. It was sent to two labs because that's what they routinely do in his hospital. It was positive in one lab and negative in the other. So what exactly does that mean? Um, if, if we have antibodies, uh, we don't really know if that actually confers immunity or uh, if that immunity is temporary, if it's, if it's permanent, if it's uh, 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 short-lived. Short so, so all this is evolving. So what we're doing today is probably going to be very different than what we do tomorrow, but we are doing testing. We are, uh, as I said earlier, limiting the number of, of people in our hospital. Um, everybody's wearing masks. Um, we were told not to do that early on, but as of about two weeks ago, uh, to uh, enhance our social distancing, since you can't really social distance in an ICU without masks, uh, we've changed that policy. So it's evolving like everybody's is, and I'm sure it's still imperfect, but we're trying to uh, keep up with the new recommendations. Well, Dr. Barrow, to harken back before um, to what you were saying about that dichotomy between the care and concern for human life and the very real economic issues, that idea, uh, that idea of a dichotomy, I think, might come more easily to people within neurosurgery 
because we frequently have to talk to our patients and their families about the difference between life itself and saving a life and the quality of that life and thinking about maintaining and protecting your health, but not health for its own sake, health for the ability to do things with a healthy body. So in that mindset, not to get too Pollyanna, but to give us a somewhat positive spin at the end of things, looking forward from today to that post-COVID future, what's something positive that you think we can all as a community take from this whole experience, learn from it, and incorporate into our future practices, not merely in reaction to this crisis which we've gone through, but as a way to grow and improve as physicians? Well, I, that's that's a that's a great question. Um, I, I think uh, you know this whole uh, uh, pandemic has caused all of us to kind of rethink a lot of aspects of our lives. Uh, I'm I'm sure you've heard the news reports that that the number of patients um, w- with heart attacks, patients coming to the emergency room with stroke, uh, other emergency problems that have nothing to do with COVID has declined. Mm. Um, presumably because people are afraid to come to the hospital and are uh, not getting the life-changing and uh, life-saving emergency medical treatment that they need. So uh, it puts things in perspective uh, for us, I think. Uh, I think also, um, you know, I'm I'm 65 years old um, and... uh, you know, being at home uh, more than I usually am over the course of the last several weeks, uh, being on Zoom calls all day, uh, I'm sure in my generation has had an impact on on looking back and figuring out what you want to do. Um, for some, uh, it may have accelerated their decision that retirement is not such a bad thing, having some free time and mm. Uh, maybe spending time with your family uh, and and uh, hunting or golfing or doing whatever you enjoy doing when you're not operating all the time may have accelerated that decision. Certainly for me, it's made me realize that I'm not ready to retire at all. I miss my work. Uh, I was delighted when I had the opportunity to come in and do an urgent case, uh, take care of a subarachnoid hemorrhage, to take care of uh, something that uh, got me out of that. So I I think it it helped me in that regard, realize how much I love my work and and miss it if if I'm not doing it. Um, It may, for other people, uh, they may realize that their 401k has been uh, destroyed and they need to keep working uh, to rebuild that. So I think there are going to be a lot of repercussions. Um, uh, I I think there, there are two things that are really not so much medical that I do worry about in the post-COVID uh, era, um, that I that I see creeping in, I, and I, I I'm, I'm I hope I'm I'm wrong, but I see that it's really that, that fact-based honesty, which is what medicine and science is based on, is really coming under some kind of attack. You know, it's it's become almost politically incorrect to question any of the any of the authorities. Even the great Dr. Fauci, who has gained and earned enormous uh, respect by the country, has made a number of errors in his prediction. And it seems that we're reaching a point where only the opinions approved by leaders are are allowed and, and tolerated. And we're really told to kind of accept this without question. And so I, I you know, as people have begun to look at, at uh, the data and they 
more people are tested and we realize that the, the mortality rate for this, this disease is probably going to be extraordinarily low, um, uh, it seems to be almost unacceptable to question our leaders' decisions about how they're opening the economy. Uh, and, you know, there's a reason that the First Amendment is the First Amendment. Uh, the ability to question authority and question our leaders, uh, whether it's your governor or your president or uh, the people leading uh, the health care system, uh, is really something that we should cherish and 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 not give up. And I do worry a bit about that. The on a positive side, being in an academic medical center, um, you know, I hope that one of the uh, outcomes of this is that academic institutions have an opportunity to kind of you know rethink the ra- rather dramatic increase we've seen in the number of administrators. Uh, that have been hired over the past couple of decades in in um, in our universities. Uh, you know, compared to virtually any other good and service in the American economy, including medical care, um, I think only cigarettes and other tobacco products have seen prices rise faster than the cost of going to college. And um, a lot of this is due to this just ungodly increase in the number of administrators on college campuses. It's more than doubled, far outpaced the number of increased uh, students. And so uh, these college administrators that make, you know, six-figure salaries, I'm not exactly what they do for that money. Uh, They're some of the least impressive groups of people in in the country, and not a single thing they do really, I think, makes the country better. So maybe, you know, there will be an opportunity for us uh, at and our, our institutions, as some of these people are at home and not working, realize that maybe we don't need them and the cost of education might come down to where it ought to be. So I, I think it's going to be a combination of um, some some benefits. I think we'll, we'll realize uh, the value of, of our jobs and our work in some instances. Maybe we'll realize that uh, that we're uh, spending too much money in other areas and that we get by just fine without them. Um, and, uh, but it's certainly, uh, been unlike anything I've seen in my lifetime in terms of giving us pause to look at, uh, our society, look at our, our jobs, our, our, uh, what we contribute to society and, uh, and reevaluate, uh, our, our entire life. Well, Dan, that's very well put. And you know that I agree wholeheartedly with everything you said. I, I can always rely on you for a very honest practical, common sense-based approach to life. And and you have exemplified that today. I, I think that uh, what you're doing in Atlanta is fantastic. And we wish that you're safe and well and your family's well. And uh, we have to have you back on to talk about hospital administrators. Maybe we can do that uh, as this, this coronavirus pandemic levels out. Amen. I'm sorry we didn't get to talk about whiskey and cars, because uh, that actually is a subject I, I enjoy much more, but maybe the next time. <laughs>